I'm going to start tonight in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 tells us of one of Jesus' early um, ministry and efforts. He's uh, just recently come back from the, the um, 40 days in the wilderness where the devil came and tempted him at the end. And he has begun his ministry in Galilee. Verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This scripture, this day, excuse me, is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I want you to back up and notice what Jesus read from uh, Isaiah. We know of, it, uh, know of it as Isaiah 61, beginning in the first verse of the chapter. He's, uh, he's identifying and reading scriptures that everybody knows applies to the Messiah and only to the Messiah. Jesus is declaring to his own hometown who he is. The first time he comes back from being baptized uh, in the Jordan River by John and the Holy Ghost descending on him in bodily shape as a dove, it says in the scripture. And notice what he said. Notice what the Bible identifies about Jesus, that he's anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, the word preach means to proclaim or declare. And I want you to notice how many times the preaching or the declaration of something is identified in what Jesus said he was anointed to do. He's anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Well, the word gospel means good news. Uh, what's the good news to the poor? They don't have to say poor. It's not God's plan or his purpose for them to be poor. And so they don't have to stay that way. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the, to the poor, to declare that the poor can be rich. Jesus went on to say, or read, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, the word brokenhearted, we usually associate that with emotional anguish and hurts and things like that in our past. And don't get me wrong, God cares about every part of your life. He wants you to be restored and experience joy in every aspect of your life. But this word brokenhearted doesn't have anything to do with emotions. This word brokenhearted, it's a compound word, and it means literally a breach in spirit. A breach in spirit. The Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve fell and sinned in the Garden of Eden, sin came on the scene and certainly sickness was not present in, in any of God's creation prior to that point. But where uh, the Bible indicates to us that Adam and Eve lost a position. In other words, the spiritual order that God created everything to be in, which in relation to the human body was divine health, there was a, a, a breach or a brokenness or a tear in the spiritual order. And as a result, every evil work, every sin, uh, every, sin every sickness, every disease, everything that the devil has uh, brought into this world came as a result of that breach in spiritual things or in spiritual order 
when Adam and Eve fell. So what he's saying here, he's anointed to heal the brokenhearted. He's literally saying, I'm anointed to heal everything that's a result of the breach caused by Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden. Well, that's all sickness and disease. That means he's anointed to heal every sickness and every disease. There's not one that's left out. There's not one that's too strong or too hard or too great. Notice he's anointed to heal all those that have uh, suffered the effects of Adam's breach in spirit. So the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Good news. You don't have to stay poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, all, all those that are sick and diseased. Again, this word preach, to preach deliverance to the captives, to proclaim or declare. Now, this word preach is a different word that's used than uh, earlier in the chapter. But the, the meanings in the, uh, as identified in the Greek through Strong's Concordance are so slight that they might as well be the same words. It literally means to declare, to make an open declaration. Now, what I want you to see is people are delivered by the open declaration of their mouths. That's what he's saying. He's saying that he's sent to preach deliverance to the captives. And notice the next thing it says, and recovering of sight to the blind. The fact that the word and is there is a conjunction. It joins what he was talking about before with what he's talking about now. What he was talking about before is preaching deliverance to the captives. Here he's talking about the same result will come to the blind through the preaching of recovering of sight. The declaration. To set at liberty them that are bruised, again this word preach, to preach or proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What I want you to make notice of is that Jesus, in fulfilling what God has given him to do, Jesus is declaring to them, to us, he's declaring that much of what he was anointed to do comes about through the proclaiming of freedom. Through the proclaiming of freedom. Now you remember over in Acts chapter 14, it talks about uh, Paul and Silas going to a certain region. Let me read it rather than just quote it. Let me read it to make sure that I get the whole thing. Don't leave anything out. It talks about they were in the region of Galatia and they, there they preached the gospel, verse 7. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak. Now, it doesn't tell us what Paul was, um, uh, this word speak just literally means talk. So we don't know what he was doing. We don't know if he was preaching. We don't know if he was teaching. We don't know what he was doing. But he was declaring in some form, some fashion, he was declaring the good news. That's ours because of Jesus coming to the earth and offering himself as a sacrifice. So there they preached the gospel. And this same man, this crippled man, the same man heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, he proclaimed something. He declared something. He said with a loud voice, stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And he leaped and walked. Paul never touches this guy. Never lays a hand on him. Now I'm sure there's some quickening of the Holy Ghost taking place here. Whether Paul identified that he had faith to be healed just from what he saw or what, uh, what he perceived in his spirit. Maybe the Holy Ghost told him and it's just not identified in the scripture this way. 
But he had to know something supernaturally about this guy. Had to. And what he perceived about this man's faith to be healed was realized by Paul proclaiming, saying with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now tell me something. What changed in this guy and when? He's one moment crippled, can't walk. Can't say that he didn't have faith. He did have faith. You can't say that he was healed the moment that he got faith because he's still crippled while the Bible says he had faith. Paul perceived he had faith to be healed. That means he's got faith to be healed but not healed yet. When does something happen? And what was the cause of it? The declaration that Paul makes that this guy because of the faith that he's received from hearing Paul speak the declaration of the faith that this guy has to be loosed by taking action it says and he leaped and walked did he leap and walk before or after he got healed well we'd have to say if we're thinking naturally we'd have to say well he got healed first and then he was able to leap and walk But folks, I want you to see it all happened at the same moment. And the thing that changed in his body was affected by words. That was affected by words. So when Jesus is saying, I'm anointed to preach the gospel, to declare something, uh, preach the gospel to the poor, to declare that the poor don't have to stay poor. I'm sent to heal the brokenhearted. I think most of us have the idea... And it's an easy idea to, to, to assume. But I think most of us have the idea that Jesus just went around throughout his ministry, throughout Galilee and Judea, wherever he was. He went out dispensing the power of God that made a change in people's lives. But the Bible says God sent his word and healed them. The Bible talks about how that People were healed by Jesus' words. Now we know there's a lot of different ways that Jesus um, ministered healing. The lower level that he operated, the lowest level that we know of that he operated, and, and really it looks to me like in the four Gospels, the most common operation of Jesus is to lay hands on people. But then there are other times where people were healed by the things that he said, where he never touched them, never made any contact with them whatsoever, but they were healed and delivered by his words. Do you remember Romans chapter 1? Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Christ, for it is the good news of Jesus For it is the power of God unto salvation. Now that word salvation is a multifaceted word. It means a lot of different things. It means everything involved in what Jesus did to to bring salvation and redemption for us. The word literally in the Greek means to rescue, deliver, make safe, make sound, and to heal. 
So the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the words that communicate what God has done for us through Christ Jesus, those words are in themselves the power of God to heal. Those words are the power of God in themselves to deliver. Those words bring soundness of mind. They rescue. They make safe and sound. They heal your body. The words themselves. See, faith is not creating something. Faith is a choice to speak the power of God through the words already given. I believe that there's, well, let me give you another example. You, uh, you remember over in Mark chapter 11 where Jesus cursed the fig tree. What's he doing? He spoke the fig tree when it didn't have fruit on it, even though it looked like it would and was, should have, should have had fruit. Jesus speaks to the fig tree and says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. What's he doing? He's making a declaration that this is the way it's going to be. That this is the way it's going to be. It's the declaration that kills the tree. It's the declaration of power-filled words that changes the condition of that tree. Next morning they come walking by and they see the tree dried up from the roots. Well, what attacked the roots? The words of power that Jesus declared over the tree. Now, why would it work any different with sickness and disease than it works with a tree? If words declared by Jesus killed a fig tree from the roots, or we might say it this way, from the bottom up or from the inside out, if Jesus' declaration concerning the tree changed the living condition of that tree, of that tree changed it from life to death, why could not our declaration of the word of God concerning sickness and disease have the same effect on that sickness or disease? It does. I think too often we're not making declarations we're making confessions, hoping God will make good on what we say. But it's the words themselves that are the power of God. It's the words themselves. The declaration that changed the condition of sickness to health. That is the spiritual order. That is the, the default position, if you will. Healed and divine health Divine healing and divine health is the default position for how God made man to be. The reason that that's not the case in everybody's physical being is because of what Jesus identifies as this brokenheartedness, a breach in spirit. Well, what does he say brings us out of that? In many situations, in many cases, he talks about the declaring of the truth. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. God says, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions 
for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Then he says this. He said, put me in remembrance. Put me in remembrance. Now, folks, I don't believe God's got a memory issue or problem. He doesn't need us to tell him what he said because he forgot. He needs us to tell him what he said so that it's clear that we know. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Now notice this. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Now if you put verse, 23, uh, verse uh, 25 together with verse 26... A lot of times we just pull them out and uh, and use verse 26 separately. But notice it's connected with verse 25 where God said, I'm the one that's blotted out your sins for my sake, not for your sake. We think it's for us. God did it for himself. He said, I'm the one that blotted out your sins. Well, if your sins have been blotted out, either through the Old Testament sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, or in our case, the much greater condition or position of having been redeemed from sin, sickness, and death. When God says, I have taken your sins from you, the Bible identifies that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed us from our sin. Then for him to say, put me in remembrance and declare thou that thou mayest be justified, what he's saying is very simply this. It's your declaration that makes that justification real for you. It's already happened. He said he'd blotted out our sins. Well, then why do we need to be justified? Doesn't the blotting out of sin, doesn't the price that Jesus paid, the shedding of Jesus' blood, the offering of his blood as a sacrifice for us, isn't that what brings us justification? Sure. How many people walk walk or live by it, live up to it, I should say, rather than just struggle with it day by day by day? When he says, declare thou that thou mayest be justified, he's saying your declaration makes the difference. Your declaration. Your declaration first and foremost that Jesus is your your Savior, is your Lord and Savior. Your confession of salvation makes it a reality in your life. But things certainly don't stop there. There's a lot of things that the Bible tells us that Jesus uh, purchased for us obtained for us through his resurrection that are never going to be ours unless we do something about it. Here's what the Bible is telling us to do about it. Make your declaration. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. What you say matters. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, God sent his word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. It's his word declared by us over our bodies that determine what we're going to have or what we don't have. So when Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach deliverance, people are delivered by words. To preach recovering of sight to the blind. Blind eyes are healed through words. To set at liberty them that are bruised, that's deliverance, through words. And to preach and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable year of the Lord in the Old Testament was the day of, uh, was the year of Jubilee, excuse me. It happened once every 50 years. We don't have a year of Jubilee anymore. We have a condition where we live 
in the equivalent of the year of Jubilee. Every year, every day, every moment, every hour is the equivalent of the day of Jubilee for us because Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And remember the issue in the year of Jubilee was that every man's possessions were restored to them. Well, for us, that means restored in the sense that things are the same or restored to be the same for us as it was before sin entered the world. Again, we're talking about a default position concerning our bodies of healing and health. That's the year of Jubilee for us in that respect. So God says, because I've separated you from your sins, because I've blotted them out, because I've made you righteous, he says, put me in remembrance. He's talking to righteous people. Now, righteousness was granted to them on credit in the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't yet come. But for us, it's not something we're credited with. It's something that literally is ours. It's something that's been made unto us. We've been born again. Our nature has changed by the acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So he says, put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. He's talking about pleading your case. Now, what in the world would we have? What position in the world would we have to plead our case with if we haven't been made righteous? See, righteousness, meaning right standing before God, someone defined it this way, the ability to stand before God without a sense of guilt or shame. If right standing before God, righteousness that's been imparted unto us, that we've been made, changed into, that gives us a position with God where we could plead our case. Now, an example, an Old Testament example of somebody pleading their case was when Abraham was talking to the Lord when he was on the way to deal with Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was negotiating with God about how many righteous people would you have to find in the city not to, kill the, uh, not to wipe the city out. You remember the story? God identifies, uh, Jesus identifies to Abraham that if, it's, if the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah is what has come up into his ears, then he's going to destroy the city. Abraham says, what if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Folks, that's a mouthful for a human being to say to God, the creator of the universe. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God, who you would expect, most people's idea of God as being an austere judge and so forth. Many or most people's idea might be that that would be the point where God said, how dare you challenge my justice? But God simply says, I won't destroy it for 50 righteous. So Abraham asked him about 40. What if we're 10 short of that 50? He said, no, I won't destroy it for 40. What about 30? Won't destroy it for 30. Won't destroy it for 20. How about 10? Abraham asked one last time, and he says, I dare to speak one last time. He seems to be on a roll. I don't know why he wanted to quit. But God says, no, I won't destroy it for 10. Maybe that's the point that uh, uh, Abraham just assumed with everybody in Lot's house. There's got to be 10 involved or 10 that are following God, so I don't need to go any further. I don't know. 
But there, that's an example of Abraham pleading his case before God. Pleading his case before God. So when God says, put me in remembrance, certainly he's talking about bringing his word back to him. Again, not because he's forgotten what he told us, but for us to have a chance, an opportunity to speak into our own lives what God's word reveals that he's done for us. Then he says, let us plead together, declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Now, folks, I think that sometimes the devil tries to make us think we've got to talk God into something that his word says. And, of course, we never do. If God wasn't on board for, for doing what the word says, he wouldn't have said it. And so I think a lot of times the devil tries to make us think that God's our enemy. God's the one withholding good things. God's the one that's delaying and ministering healing to our bodies or restoring our bodies or whatever the case is. The devil's got all kinds of ways he can lie about it. But I think a lot of times what happens is that we get the idea that we're having to try to talk God or convince him into something when his word says it's already done. And our righteousness, our right standing before God, the righteousness of God that is made unto us at the new birth, that righteousness gives us ultimate and absolute authority to determine what we will have or not have here on the earth. You remember Jesus said on several occasions to us as representatives, as represented by his disciples, he said in several different places, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. He's saying you decide. Now, if you remember, that's what God made man to do here on the earth. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says unequivocally that God's plan his never-changing plan, his never-changing will, is for man to have authority on the earth. He put man here on the earth for one express purpose. There's only one thing that the Bible says that God did it for. He wasn't lonely. He's God. You can't get lonely when you're God. If he was lonely, then he would not be the ultimate source of power and, and the origin of all things. There'd be something missing. There was nothing missing for God. So God didn't make man because he was lonely. God didn't make man because he wanted to fellowship with somebody. God made man for one express purpose, and that is to exercise authority and dominion over all the work of his hands. God made man to be the ruler of the earth. For that reason, when the Bible says here in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 26, declare thou that thou mayest be justified, he's saying you decide what you're going to have because I've made you righteous. You decide. You decide. Let me remind you of a scripture over in 1 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Paul's talking to the church and he says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Please notice this. He's saying, We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. You're not your own. For you, verse 20, are bought with a price. That price was the blood of Jesus. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body 
and in your spirit, which are God's. He's saying your body belongs to God just as much as your spirit does. And he instructs us to glorify God in our bodies, just like we glorify God in our spirits. Now, how do we glorify God in spirit? Well, we become doers of the word. We act in obedience with whatever the word tells us to do. We put God in his word first place in the centerpiece of our lives. And we act on the word as we see it. As we come to the understanding and revelation of it, we should be walking in his word and walking according to the truth more and more day by day. Well, then how do we glorify God in our bodies? Well, we glorify God in our spirit by accepting only what his word says and not what the devil tells us. We glorify God in our bodies by accepting only what God says his will for our bodies is and not what the devil brings. So we have been justified, made righteous by the shed blood of Jesus and by his resurrection so that we, as part of the family of God, can declare how things are going to be for us. How things are going to be. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Different translations show those words, use different words. One of them is whatever you prohibit on the earth, heaven backs you up. Whatever you allow on the earth, heaven will allow that too. You're the one that chooses, you're the one that declares. We see this happening in, in uh, well, I started to say in real time, but I'm not talking about time specifically. We see what happened when Jesus was in uh, his hometown of Nazareth, how that the people rejected him. When Jesus said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears, they all wondered at him. They know what he's saying. He's very clearly identifying that these scriptures about the Messiah are talking about me. This day, right now, me being here with you, these scriptures are fulfilled in your ears. And then they start coming up with reasons why that they didn't think it could be. They said, who is this guy? And what things have we heard about him? They've already heard about the healings and the miracles that he did in Capernaum just a short time before. The Bible doesn't even refer to them specifically, but Jesus references that they knew what he had done. So they started saying, who is this with these gracious words? We know him. He grew up here. Then Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor save in his own country or his own hometown. In other words, he's saying, I know why you're rejecting me. You think you know me. You know me in the flesh or have known me in the flesh. You think you know my family situation. And that's why you're not allowing yourself to believe and receive what God has. He said, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, physician, heal thyself. The same works that we've heard you do in Capernaum do also here. So their, their thinking, their position is Prove it to us. Then maybe we'll believe. And folks, that never works. We're expected to believe without the proof in order to receive the proof and the evidence of the word. They get so upset with him that they want to throw him off the brow of the hill. They want to kill him because he's claimed to be anointed to heal them. Seems pretty drastic measures. 
But Jesus walks through the midst of them. Goes back to Capernaum, the scripture says. And heals everybody that had need of healing. What's the difference? Jesus was the same in Capernaum as he was in Nazareth. He's not what changed. Sickness and disease in Capernaum was the same sickness and disease that you would expect to be in Nazareth. So that didn't change. The only thing that changed was the mindset of the people of the towns. The only thing that was different was that Capernaum accepted what he said. And that allowed Jesus to operate. That allowed the anointing to bring healing and, and deliverance to the people that needed it. But not Nazareth. Mark 6 tells us about that same experience in Nazareth. In verse 5 it says, and he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. We know that he wanted to because he's just told the people in Nazareth, at least the people in the synagogue in Nazareth, he's told them that he's anointed to do these things. He's anointed to bring healing. He's anointed to open blind eyes. He's anointed to bring cripples help by healing their paralysis. He's anointed to do all kinds of healing miracles. No miracle is too great. But they wouldn't have it. He could there do no mighty work. Not he wouldn't. He could there do no mighty work. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He tries to counteract that. He went around about their cities and villages teaching. He's trying to inspire faith. He's trying to give them enough of the truth of the word. I would expect that to be evidence of what the Bible says in the Old Testament about the Messiah. He's trying to give them enough to, so that they'll be willing to believe and hang on to it. But apparently they never did. Apparently the condition of the people of Nazareth stayed the same from the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry. They were left on the outside hearing all the wonderful things that Jesus did and all the miracles that he performed in different cities and different places and never experienced any of it for themselves. Never experienced anything of it for themselves. Now what do we know since Capernaum and the people of Capernaum and the other cities as well, since they did receive the power of God and people in their cities were healed and so forth. What does that mean? Well, it means if we know that, and since we know that in Nazareth, Jesus marveled at their unbelief, then that has to mean that the other cities expressed and, and or released faith in what Jesus said he was sent to do. Now, since the definition of the release of faith is to speak, believe in your heart and say with your mouth, that means their declarations concerning what Jesus said about himself and what he's sent to do open the door for the miracles to happen their declarations not his declaration not just Jesus declaring over them that they're healed their declarations of what they will allow as opposed to what they will prohibit or bind made all the difference in the world so how do we glorify God in our bodies by resisting every evil thing that comes against us. How do you do that? With your words. You decide how things are going to be. You decide what you will allow. You make a declaration to let Satan know how far he can come. The Bible says Satan walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for you to give him permission. He can't do it on his own. He's looking for you or me or anybody to give him permission. 
Now, what does that permission look like? He doesn't come to any of us and say, I want to put sickness and disease on you. Will that be okay? That's not the kind of permission that he's looking for. Well, what kind of permission is he looking for? He's looking to try to bring circumstances and situations, physical evidence, to such a degree in our lives that we begin to doubt the truth of God's word that says we can be healed and delivered. So the permission is granted when we fail to declare. When we fail to declare what we will allow according to God's word versus what we won't allow. Permission is granted to the devil to devour us by us closing our mouths or speaking against God's word. That's how you give him permission. Well, then how do we refuse to give him permission? We declare what God's word says no matter what the circumstances look like. We declare the truth of God's word no matter what is going on in our lives, coming against us, or what we feel in our bodies. That's how we bind the work of sickness and disease coming against us. Now, does it work instantly? I wish I could say it did. But time is not the issue. Truth is the issue. The devil wants you to look at the time. God wants you to look at truth. Abraham considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old. He didn't deny the age of his body. He just didn't let that be the final issue, the final word. He kept his eyes on God's promise. So what is he doing? He's declaring what God said instead of how he feels and how he appears. Same thing for his body, same thing for Sarah's body. He declares that it shall be unto him even as God has said, according to that which was spoken. According to that which was spoken. He's making his declaration according to what God said and not according to the circumstances. So he refused to give the devil any further place. It looks to me like he got to the point where he was up until his 99th year, somewhere between age 75 and age 99, he's given up on the promise of God. But when God appears to him, and reignites or rekindles the truth of what he said to him so many years before. Abraham then becomes strong in faith, looking at the promise. He changed his condition from unbelief to faith by focusing on the promise instead of the circumstances. By looking at what God said about his children, his descendants, instead of looking at the age of his body. He changed his circumstance through the declaration of the word. If he can do that, you can do that too. If he can do that, then you and I can do that. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. You know what I think our position should be? I think somewhere along the way, we should say, devil, how dare you? How dare you bring this against me? Do you not know who I am? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Do you not know what price Jesus paid for me and for my body? How dare you? 
See, that kind of praying, that kind of declaration, that kind of pleading your case and putting God in remembrance, that always works. I'll tell you one thing about why that works. is because it sets things in order as far as your thinking and your understanding is concerned that it's you and God against the devil. Not you against God trying to get him to do something. That's a favorite position of the devil, folks. That's one of the reasons why he attacks the word so much. He wants you to think you're on the opposite side of God. And that only by your good behavior, perfect behavior, sinless walk, whatever it is that he's trying to convince us of, only by those things which we never can attain will God be on our side. And that's never true. When the Bible says that God made peace for us or peace with us through the sacrifice of Jesus, it means God's always on your side. We've got to keep that in focus. This is God on our side. The devil may be withstanding. The devil may be withholding. The devil may be creating a stir and a delay. But it's me and God against the devil. Because you were put here on this earth to decide what will be and what will not be in your life. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. Well, let's stand up and make some declarations. What do you say? Say this after me. I am a child of God. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus. I've been made righteous with his righteousness. I am justified before God. He sees me in Christ. He sees me in the same righteousness that Jesus himself has. I am made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as a child of God, I refuse to allow sickness and disease in my body. I resist sickness. I command it to go. I declare before heaven and earth, before God and the devil, that I was healed by the stripes of Jesus. My body responds to the spoken word of God. I am healed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and with his stripes, I was healed. I refuse to allow any sickness, any disease, any symptom, or any trace of symptoms in the name of Jesus. Satan, I declare that healing is mine. I refuse to allow you access to my body or my life. In Jesus' name, so be it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Now, folks, I'm not saying that this is literally the same way that it works, but this is the same position.
that Paul found that guy in Lystra who was crippled and heard him speak. He had faith to be healed. And all he needed was just a little nudge to act on that faith and release it. We've done the same thing. Maybe not in the same way, but we've done virtually the same thing in this place tonight. We've made our declarations. Now it's simply left for us to act on what we said we believed. You act on it. And you'll find the same healing power operating in you that the guy did in Acts 14. Amen. Father, we love you. We bless your holy name. We surrender our lives unto you. We commit our lives unto your work and your plan and your purpose. We commit ourselves to your word. Thank you, Father, that it's you and us against the devil. You're on our side. You're for us, you're with us, and you're in us because we're your children. Thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Can I share something with you real quick? There are several places in the, in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms. David says a lot about this. Well, a lot. He says it several different times, different places. He talks about like as a father pitieth his child, so God pities us. Pities is a real poor word for what that means. Pity is almost like feeling sorry for somebody, and God certainly doesn't feel sorry for us. The word pitieth means to fondle. You know how when your kids are little, you can't keep your hands off of them? You're always trying to touch them. You're always stroking their back. You're always kissing their cheek. You're doing something because of the love you have toward them. Sometimes even when they get to the point where you don't want them to, or they don't want you to, but you do it anyway. You just force it and make it happen. You're bigger than them, and you love them, and you want to get near them, and so that's just what you do. That's what that word pitieth means. That's the way God looks at us. That's the kind of love he, he, he has for us. That's the kind of care that he has for us. Just like we do with our children when they're real small. That's how much God loves us. You think he's holding back? No way. Not a chance. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. We lift our hands, we lift our hearts, we lift our lives unto you. We love you, Father. And we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that we're complete in you, in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Ever known a parent good parent to refuse their child when they lift their hands to him that's what it is when we lift our hands to God same attitude he has toward us hallelujah well God's word's good isn't it 
Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us. Don't forget, there's no Wednesday night service this week. And next Sunday is Christmas Eve. So our Christmas Eve service will be Sunday night. God bless you. Have a great week. We love you.